Romans chapter 16. Originally, I had intended to preach straight through to the end of Romans this morning, but I really could not get past the application of verse 19 in particular. And so we'll take two Sundays to finish out the book, and then I do want to come back and preach a sermon that takes us all the way from chapter 1 through chapter 16. Let's go ahead this morning and read from verse 17 through to the end. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. He, of course, was Paul's scribe. Paul dictated the words to Tertius. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation, the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ, amen. Well, this final section is perhaps a little bit unwieldy in terms of thematic structure, but Paul does essentially three things. First of all, in verses 17 through 20, he will issue a final warning coupled with a commendation. Secondly, in verses 21 through 23, he passes along greetings to, to the Romans from several Christians, several of his colleagues. And thirdly, in verses 25 through 27, he concludes with a final doxology. So let's consider the first. In verse 17, Paul issues a warning in the form of an appeal concerning false teachers. False teachers are people who cause division and oppose Christian doctrine. Who these people were in the first century, we cannot say for sure. Verse 18 describes them as not serving our Lord Christ, but rather their own appetites. The phrase can be also translated their own belly. It's probably an idiomatic expression for people who are just self-centered, egoistic, people who are interested in personal gain. And such people, notice, are persuasive, smooth-talking, flattering people. 
Their ultimate deception is in their tongue. It's quite possible, in fact, even very likely, that Paul refers to people who haven't yet even arrived in Rome. Paul surely would arrive soon, he thought. And when he came, the false teachers would come along also. Because nearly everywhere Paul went, the false teachers came, sort of dogging his heels everywhere he went. Paul likely is referring generally to the kinds of false teachers that did indeed spring up all over the empire with the advent of Christianity. Jesus described described them as tares among the wheat. Jesus warned us against them. They look like Christians. They sound like Christians. Don't be misled. So friends, we really have to face the implications of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that Christians really can be naive. That's the end of verse 18. They deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, None of us wants to think that we are gullible or easily deceived. But if you are unwilling to take Paul's words seriously, then you probably are the person that needs this most. In fact, the most gullible people I know are people who think they're not gullible. That's the irony. The truth is, through the internet, and social media, and radio and television, Christians have greater access today to false teachers than at any other time in all of human history. False teaching can pervade the atmosphere of your car simply by turning on the Christian radio station. And Christians today are more susceptible to false teaching as a result because it's just everywhere. And Christians who think they can live independently of the watch care of the local church are especially naive. And pastors who think they don't need a multitude of counselors are naive. Have you ever really just considered how many warnings the New Testament has about false teachers? The answer is a lot. And the New Testament would not give us so many, many warnings unless Christians really were deceivable by false teachers. I just really want to make sure that we're not naive about this. Let me put this in a little bit of context. In the late 20th century and into the 21st century, there was a great deal of teaching in Bible-believing churches about separation from false teachers. Fundamentalism as a whole came to be largely defined by the doctrine of separatism. Any number of books were written on the topic and conferences were convened to give attention to the topic of separatism. Now I have at times been critical of the heirs of fundamentalism. I do believe the movement often got off balance. Churches and organizations and individuals often took separatism to extremes. Strict separatism can degenerate into spiritual pride. 
fundamentalism was complicit in segregation. It's a largely white movement. And it's true that separatism has been practiced in patently unbiblical ways. If you have a problem with a brother, well, go tell him. Don't put it in your pastor's journal and send it around to all your buddies. Strict separatism also fueled the production of tribalistic narratives and church history. The histories of fundamentalism and many denominations were often very one-sided. Let's just praise our whole movement and forget about the defects. Well, that's all true. I do believe that. But I sense at times that very well-meaning Christians and churches actually became so fed up with an imbalanced, unbiblical, exaggerated approach to separatism that they just wrote it off altogether. And that, my friends, is a huge mistake. Because the Bible does indeed call for separation from false teachers and disobedient brethren. Friends, there's just no getting around that. Look at the words at the end of verse 17. Avoid them. Paul does indeed call for separation from some people. Avoid them means avoid them. And notice again the word at the end of verse 18. Naive. To assume that we can simply associate with anyone out there in the name of Christ is simply naive. Numerous passages speak of false teachers and do indeed call for separation. The most obvious passages are those that call for church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, for instance, outlines a procedure for disciplining a false teacher right out of the church. In addition, would you just consider what the New Testament actually says? All right, I'm just going to read a succession of verses. Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus said that. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 16, 11 through 12. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. These are directions to the elders. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Think of that. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Right there in the church, false teachers can arise. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 13. For such men are false apostles, 
deceitful workmen disguising themselves, get this, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's going to happen, Paul says. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. There's one of those false teachers. Second Peter 2.1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. 2 Peter 3.16 There are some things in them that are hard to understand, speaking of the Old Testament, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. 1 John 2.18-19 and verse 22 also. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now, this is first century already, Many antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. In 1 John 4 and verse 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everything you hear on the radio or in Christian television, friends. Do not believe all that. In fact, I turned on a Christian radio station this week and listened for about five minutes. I thought, this is terrible. This is totally wrong. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many, not a few, many. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's the incarnation, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Friends, when you just go hunting through the New Testament for all the references that speak against false teachers, it really is astonishing how much you find there. Christians really can indeed be misled by false teachers. This is why we have so many, many, many warnings. Don't be misled. 
Last year, I read a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers. It's just not a work of theology. But Gladwell investigates our curious default tendency to believe people are telling us the truth. We know that people lie. We know that people deceive. We know that people seek their own best interest. But Gladwell says our default is to believe other people. I have people send me videos from time to time containing supposed expert medical testimony or social commentary or political testimony or scientific or theological commentary. And I have no idea who these experts are, but it's really interesting how easily these videos just sort of circulate through the Christian community and on Facebook and social media. And when I ask expert friends about these things, they say, don't pay any attention to that. All right, well, it happens. Gladwell argues that on balance, our default tendency is to believe people are telling us the truth. And in fact, this is a commendable feature. How really would we live if we were just deeply suspicious of anyone and everyone? That would be rather challenging. I mean, just assume everybody's lying to me. But our problem is this. We tend to overtrust our own judgment. We tend to believe that a deceiver is going to deceive everyone else except me, right? I mean, he's going to deceive a lot of people. Not me. Of course not me. Gladwell says we tend to overestimate our powers of discernment. And he demonstrates how trained FBI agents, judges, lawyers, people skilled in detecting deception are often no better off than the rest of us at detecting error. It's really quite alarming. Now, my purpose is not to go into popular psychology, all right? But I just want to awaken us to the truth that false teachers really are real, and the Bible is full of warnings against them. And Gladwell really is correct. We do tend to trust our own judgment. We tend to trust our own discernment probably more than we should. And this really can be true of younger people. Now, of all people, Christians should be especially wary about trusting our own powers of discernment. We are the only people in the world who really understand that we do need the illumination of the Holy Spirit shining into our hearts. We really get that. At least we should get that. We have to let the Holy Spirit just transform the way that we think. It's like the song that we just sang. Just let the Spirit illuminate those words line by line by line. Be willing to just say, I might be wrong. To change my mind over here. Now, friends, when you couple together two categories of New Testament passages, we have every reason to be alarmed. And the first category includes all the passages that I just read concerning false teachers. The second category is a long list of passages that speak of self-deception. Gladwell actually did not discover something new. The New Testament has told us for centuries that self-deception really is a problem. 
Would you just listen again to the voice of the Holy Spirit? Romans 7, verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no one deceive himself. Paul says that because it's possible. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't let people talk you into the fact that they can live a life of sin and inherit the kingdom. Paul says, don't be deceived by that. 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Galatians 6.3, for if anyone thinks he is something, he is nothing. He deceives himself. Galatians 6.7, do not be deceived. Because it's possible you could be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows... That will he also reap. James 1, 14 through 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's talking to Christians. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, friends, I have read through that list before, but it probably is something that we just need to read often. We really can deceive ourselves. We really can be misled by our own thinking. All of us think, well, I'm the last person that I would deceive. Actually, you might be the first person you deceive. I've had conversations with teenagers and 20-somethings and lots of college students And the whole time they're talking, I just keep thinking, this person is just totally deceived. I'm thinking, this person has clearly been been misled by false teachers. He's very skilled at taking these verses right out of context. He's learned how to justify any behavior that he wants to indulge in. He's just ignoring the plain teaching of the Word. I mean, it's right there on the page. Look at it. It's right there. And it's like, no, 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 but, 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 but. Don't give me that. What does the text say? Friends, when you put these two categories of passages together, it really is alarming. We have numerous passages that warn against false teachers, 
and numerous passages that warn against self-deception. And when you put these two together, we have every reason to be alarmed. Only an enormous peril to your own spiritual condition and to the health of the whole church can we ignore such passages. Some of you may be involved in counseling. And I have gotten to the point where basically I like to begin right here with these two categories of passages. Number one, there are passages that teach there are false teachers. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that there are false teachers who could deceive you? Yes or no? All right, number two, there are many passages that say self-deception is a real problem. Do you believe that? If they say yes, I believe both those things are true, okay, let's continue. If you don't take these two categories seriously, I don't have anything else to say to you. It's just wasting my time. I mean, I'll counsel whoever wants to come, but if you don't believe, you can be deceived. And you don't believe that there are people trying to mislead you with the Scripture, well, there's nothing I can do for you, friend. There's nothing I can do for you. Again, only at enormous peril to your own spiritual condition and to the health of the whole church can we really ignore such passages. Now, why am I taking so much time with this? It's this. These two categories converge right here at the end of Romans. Notice again how verses 17 and 18 conclude. Verse 17, avoid them. Avoid them refers to the false teachers. And verse 18, naive. This is our propensity for deception. Friends, do not be naive. There are false teachers out there whom you must just avoid at all costs. There are people who just twist the Scripture. That's the word that Paul used. They twist the Scripture. It says something really clearly, and we're just going to twist it over here. Make it say something else. There are people who like Satan. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, who like Satan disguise themselves as angels of light. Think of it, if Satan can parade himself as an unfallen angel, don't you suppose that he can convince false teachers to present themselves as reputable Bible teachers? It's true. They present themselves as reputable Bible teachers. And they twist the Scriptures. Well, let me just add this as a quick aside. The New Testament also teaches the need for unity in the body of Christ. And again, I have been critical of fundamentalism at times, but I don't want us to become so lopsided that we treat the whole New Testament as a manifesto on separatism. I think that actually happened at times. It's like everything in there was all about separatism. But again, my rule of thumb is this. When I am working through a passage, just preach it. Just preach what it says. And friends, this is not a passage that insists on unity. There are some that do. And when I'm in those passages, I preach them. Right? This is not one of those passages. This is a passage that really does call for separation from false teachers. 
This passage, Paul's final word in Romans, no less, emphasizes watchfulness against these false teachers. And how would you know them? Verse 17, they oppose the doctrine that you have been taught. And where were we taught that doctrine? Well, the answer is we just worked through 16 chapters of the clearest exposition of the gospel in any work of human literature anywhere. They're false teachers who contest nearly everything that Paul has said so far in Romans, beginning especially with chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul just issues a verdict of universal condemnation on everyone. I mean, you read through there and you get all the way to chapter 3 and it's like, Really? Are we really that bad? I mean, I read it and I still sort of bristle. Am I really that bad? Are we all that bad? Right? Well, if you're going to question what Paul taught in Romans 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and all the way down to 16, all right? These are the very kinds of false teachers that Paul warns against. If a person is not going to begin where Paul begins, we really are sinful people, condemned by nature. He's probably going to go wrong on lots of other things. So Again, it's very, very important that we emphasize, verse 17, the doctrine, the doctrine that Paul has taught all the way through the book. Now, After issuing a warning to the naive against false teachers, Paul also turns to commendation in verse 19. But friends, even that commendation comes with a hint of warning. Let's read it again. And I would really like our young people in particular to give very serious heed to these words. I'm talking about our teenagers, our college students, our older children. Look at these words, verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Let's pause. Paul was writing the new believers in Rome and quickly they had developed an empire-wide reputation for their obedience to the faith. This is really commendable. However, Paul continues, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. This really is a highly significant statement. What exactly is Paul saying? The word innocent doesn't mean merely not guilty of a crime. It means something more like guileless. It's actually a rare term in the New Testament, but it's used of Jesus in Hebrews 7 verse 26 to describe him as a fitting high priest. The author writes, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Jesus was innocent in terms of human sin, that is true. But he was also guileless, unstained by sin. What exactly does that mean? It describes a person who is not intrinsically curious about evil. 
He has no desire to dabble in evil. He's not over here flirting with evil on the margins. He's not aroused with suspicion about what happens in the darkness. He has no secret inclination to flirt with evil. But the term does not mean ignorant is emphasized by the term wise earlier in the verse. I want you to be wise as to what is good. Taken together, wise and innocent describe a person who is both, get this, interested in and invested in what is good and holy and pure and true, while at the same time uninterested in and uninvested in what is evil. Friends, if you are interested in the positive, you are going to know there's a negative out there. But your fixation needs to be with the positive. Think of the person who really wants to labor to bring about an end to prostitution. He or she has to know something about the evils of prostitution. That is true. But he guards his own heart against exploring and researching all the evils of prostitution lest he be drawn into it. That's the difference. You don't have to experience it to fight against it. That's what Paul is saying. Now, young people, when you are raised in a Christian home, in a Christian school, in a Christian church, in a Christian community, you can indeed be largely protected from the evil world that is out there, and it really is out there. And you need to thank God for that extraordinary gift of a Christian community and Christian parents. And you really should be like those early Christian converts. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But let me just talk about reality. Here's what can happen. As you age, you hear the crude joking in the locker room. And immediately it puts questions in your mind. Like, oh, what does that term mean, I wonder? You have a casual conversation in the college classroom, and it suddenly goes places you never imagined, and your curiosity is aroused. You get to know your coworkers at your first job, and suddenly you feel kind of ostracized because you're not so worldly wise as they are. You stumble across things on the internet despite the filter, and you begin to realize there's a whole twisted erotic, foul, dark world out there. And suddenly you feel the lure of your flesh like a magnet and it's just drawn to places you know you ought not go. What happens is you discover your flesh. It's like when I was a kid. I heard about the bad words. I was in third grade. And I didn't know what those bad words were. But as soon as I found out about the fact there were bad words from Jenny, my next door neighbor, I really wanted to know what those words were. My, my flesh was very, very curious. Well, Jenny went to a local Catholic school and was raised by her grandparents. But they told her she was not allowed to talk about the bad words. Well... I remember it like it was yesterday. That's not going to do, Jenny. 
I told Jenny, you had, you had better tell me what they are so that when I hear them, I know not to repeat them. Well, friends, that is not what it means to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, all right? That's the flesh of a third grader speaking that really doesn't want to remain innocent about what's evil. I just, I had to know, you see? Friends, let's turn to Romans 7. And let's see whether Paul doesn't describe your own experience. Romans 7. Paul writes in Romans 7 as a redeemed person. But he nevertheless recognizes the potency of his own flesh. And it really can be quite alarming. If not encouraging to recognize that the Apostle Paul felt this way, then this explains me. This explains you. Paul says in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sounds almost schizophrenic, doesn't he? It's because it's the old Paul, new Paul, the old man, the new man. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire, the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Think of that. I don't have the ability. This is Paul the Apostle writing. I, I can't do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, Paul sounds very schizophrenic. And friends, in this context, the flesh is that unredeemable, irredeemable part of you. There is a part of you, friends, that never, ever, ever gets redeemed. Did you know this? It never gets redeemed. It gets buried when you die and left behind when you resurrect. We will not be made perfect until the new world. And there's a part of you, Paul calls it here the flesh, that is just not even redeemable. You don't try to make it better. You don't try to improve upon it. Paul says in Colossians, you have to condemn it you have to kill it dead. You have to mortify it, the King James says. That's your only option. Kill it dead. And Paul says, as an apostle, I experienced that. So verse 20, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, which has been transformed by the gospel, but I see in my members his body... Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, right in my body. I want to do things with my body that are inappropriate, Paul says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And what's the answer? The gospel. Christ Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But friends, have you ever had this experience that Paul writes about here? I mean, you know what's good, but you're just drawn toward evil like a magnet. 
You discover how strong the pull of the world on your flesh really, truly is. Evil just lies all around you. Evil inflames the curiosity of your flesh. You're intrigued by your friend's dirty little story. You're going to click on one, I mean, just one, one more internet site, right? Or maybe two. Possibly three. No more than four. Maybe five. And pretty soon you go back and look and there's a whole string of sights you've been to. Well, Psalm 1 describes the progression of a person who forsakes the law of the Lord and he pursues evil. He walks and then he stands and begins to associate and then he sits down with the evil. He sits down in front of the computer screen and dwells right there. Now, young people, your parents are not as naive as you think they are. Your dad has good reason to say you're too young for a smartphone. Trust him on that. Your mom has good reason for saying that computer is going to be in a public place in the home. Okay, trust your mom on that. Your parents have good reason for saying you need to spend a little less time with these friends. That may be hard, but your mom and dad are right on that. Don't come to me. I'm going to support your parents. As you age, you really do come to discover your own flesh. And we all need to be wary against it. Now, friends, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian school, Christian church, and I am very, very grateful for my upbringing. But in high school and college, I began working a variety of jobs, and I began working around lost people, and I'm thankful for those opportunities. I worked for two different plant and tree nurseries, and I spent a lot of time around people who just came into work drunk, and they told off-color stories and crude jokes. I worked on the construction site for a roofing company, and I heard constant language full of debauchery and innuendo. You get up on the roofs of those buildings and people are just fried the sun and it's amazing what comes out of their mouths. I drove around Boulder County, Colorado with a moving company. You heard all sorts of things in the cabs of those trucks. A relentless flood of sexual debauchery. I worked on landscape and painting crews. I worked around people who swore constantly in English, Spanish, Japanese, and even Apache. I worked around people fresh out of prison. I had a boss whose nickname was Satan. Stabbed somebody in a bar fight. Went to prison for it. I worked around illegal, illegal aliens. I worked at businesses where everyone just shacked up before getting married. I mean, my bosses. They just went home to their girlfriends. And again, I am very, very thankful for those opportunities to just live out my faith and share the gospel in the workplace. I never got to participate in any kind of former summer mission trip. Never got to do counseling at a camp. But friends, I, I found the mission field all around me. I didn't have to go overseas to find the mission field. It was all around me. And I saw some of those people actually come to Christ. I do not regret those experiences. But here's the point. Those kinds of environments just constantly expose your flesh to evil. And you've got to make a choice about how innocent you want to be to it all. 
Friends, I was lied about and slandered and ridiculed in those environments for being a Christian. And I'm not putting myself up as some great saint because I also fell in those environments. I was not always innocent about evil. I sat around and politely laughed at the jokes and hid my light under a bushel. I didn't want them thinking I was the weird Christian kid, right? The New Testament, friends, does not tell us we have to avoid working in those environments. Jesus indeed took his kingdom preaching vocation deliberately into the houses of the publicans and sinners. That's where Jesus went. But Jesus does not go in naively. That's the difference. He went in to bring the light into those dark spaces of the world. And Paul was really clear about this in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul warned against sexual immorality in the church. But he never said to avoid the sexually immoral person in the world. He didn't actually say that. They need the gospel. Listen to what he wrote. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. That's impossible. I don't want that in the church. But Paul never calls us off our rescue mission to those kinds of people in the world. He merely says, just don't bring that corruption into the church. So young people in particular, we are never called out of the world entirely. That really is the mission field. And that's where I think many separatists, from the pilgrims down to many fundamentalists, actually went wrong. You're going to get on a boat and go to the other side of the world where there's nobody there to witness to? I mean, no. We can actually press this so far that it becomes absurd. Paul never calls us out of the world in terms of our witness. But at the same time, in verse 19, back in chapter 16, verse 19, he says this, to be wise, be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Guard your heart when you get your first job. Be willing to say, you know what, that conversation just does not interest me. I'm sorry, it doesn't interest me. Be willing to say, you know, I don't need to know anything more about that topic. Make friends in college. Make friends with lost people. Make lots of friends with lost people. But don't forget what your parents told you about the internet. You don't need to be off with those friends in some dark place. God never calls us out of the world entirely. And that's because the world needs your gospel infinitely more than you need its godlessness. So be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Friends, that's how you live out our passion of bringing people to Christ and Christ-likeness. Shall we pray? Our Father, I pray that our passion would indeed be for Christ and Christ-likeness. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed guard our hearts against false teachers, against people who twist the Scriptures, that you would protect our young people, Lord, as they have their first jobs 
they go into the college classroom, Lord, that they would commit to being salt and light in a very dark place. They would commit to seeing their friends come to Christ. They would not allow the darkness of the world to hide their light under a bushel. I just pray that you would renew all of us, Lord, with these wonderful words of warning and commendation, that we would be wary against evil, wary against false teachers, and Lord, we pray that our righteousness, our good, would be made known to all men, that we would indeed be wise, wise to what is good, Lord. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.